Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our Easter Sunday message. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. This morning I want to start in Gethsemane, and our first passage will be Matthew 26. We'll start in verse 38 through 39. I'm going to pray for a moment over the word. Lord, we love you so much. We honor you. We ask that you would speak through your word this morning. We believe it to be God-inspired, inerrant. We ask that you would use it. Lord, we don't want to leave this room the same as we came. Nobody came here to hear me, Lord. You speak. Guard my lips. You speak, Abba. We love you, we love you, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, verses 38 through 39 reads this. Going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus leaves the disciples in the garden of Gethsemane. He steps deeper into the darkness and he crumbles. His knees give under the weight of anxiety of what's to come. His perfectly wonderful face eats that dirt and he prays, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, your will. The biblical imagery that Jesus implores here, he implores on many other occasions, this idea of the cup. Mark chapter 10, verses 37 through 40, um, the disciples, James and John, come to Jesus and say, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They say, We're able. Jesus said to him, The cup that I drink, you'll drink. With the baptism that I'm baptized, you'll be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left, it's not mine to grant, but it's for those who it's been prepared. Now James and John come to Jesus and say, can we sit at your right and at your left? And Jesus says to him, you'd have to be able to drink the cup. You've got to be able to be baptized with that which I'm baptized with. Now here Jesus speaks of suffering. Here he says, I'll drink the cup of suffering. I'll be baptized in a baptism of agony. And James will go on to be the first apostle martyred. Herod will take off his head. And John be left on the island of Patmos to bask in his own loneliness. Here Jesus says the cup is a cup of suffering. But the prophets speak of a cup in the different way of the cup. Isaiah 51 verse 17 says this. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And Jeremiah 25 verses 15 through 16 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, He said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. And in this sense, Jesus' cup is unique to the disciples. Because Jesus will also drink the cup of wrath. They would endure extreme sorrow and loneliness. 
we find Jesus drinking the cup of wrath towards our fallenness. He drinks the cup of judgment for my overwhelming sinfulness. He drinks the punishment of my rebellion. His knees give in as he makes his way to the place of prayer. His elbows dig into the rocky soil. His face meets the dust and he prays in desperation. Father, take this cup from me if it possible. If not, I'll drink it. The father nudges the cup his way. And Jesus wraps his hand around the cup here in Gethsemane and he begins to press the cup of wrath to his holy lips and he raises the cup of loneliness, tips back the cup of anxiety, of fear, of pain and sorrow. He begins to swallow the judgment that you deserve. It's the cup of abandonment that he partakes of. The bitter taste of betrayal of those close to him fills his mouth and agony washes through his chest. It's shame that overwhelms him. The father slides the cup across the table and Jesus tilts back and drinks the wrath that you and I deserve. Now up from the garden floor, He's betrayed with the kiss of a friend, led to be judged by sinful men. Now that is the maybe the greatest irony of all of Scripture, that sinful, broken humanity will sit and judge the perfect, holy creator. And Pilate didn't realize that one day he would stand before Jesus and the roles would be turned and he would have to give account to the most holy man that ever existed. What irony we find in this picture. Jesus allows himself to be judged by broken humanity. And he's scourged, his skin is torn, his organs exposed. He's physically tormented, forced to carry his cross to Golgotha, Skull Hill, Calvary. He's pinned to the cross, nails piercing his already shedded skin. Now Matthew in chapter 27 verse 45 tells us this. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And this is an in- interesting picture of the narrative. In AD 221, Julius Africanus comments on a document written by a historian named Thallus. Now we don't have Thallus's original document, but we have Julius interacting with it. And Julius writes, On the whole world there pressed the most fearful darkness. The rocks were rent by an earthquake. Many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Julius brings the natural explanation for the darkness that came during Jesus' crucifixion. His attempt to reason it away only testifies to the fact that it happened. Another historian in 137 AD writes, In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, that's AD 33, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun, and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, so that stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia. Many things were overturned in Nicaea. So the scriptures tell us that for three hours, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that's from noon till 3 p.m., there was total and complete darkness. Extra biblical historians, people who aren't necessarily Christians, tell us that um, in the middle of the day it was pitch black. It was so awfully black that the stars came out for three hours. 
Luke writes in chapter 23, verse 44 through 45, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. While the sun's light failed. Now Genesis 1 opens with this declaration, Let there be light. But God creates the sun on day four. This fact has confounded biblical readers for some time, but it seems that the Genesis narrative tells us that on day one, God said, let there be light, but he was not speaking to the sun. He was releasing a supernatural glory. There was a presence of God that lit the earth. Now, Revelation tells us that in the last day, there will be no sun, that the earth will be filled with God's presence so much so that we don't need a sun. But it seems that the light of the first day was God's tangible, supernatural light. And at the fall of Adam, that light was removed. Matthew says that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 9-2 in Matthew 4-16. He quotes it in speaking of Jesus. He says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light is dawned. At the fall of humanity, the light of God's glory was withdrawn. At the incarnation of Christ, the light of God's glory now existed within human flesh. And when Jesus was born, he carried the perfect presence of God in the earth again. And the scriptures say that every town he went, although they dwelt in darkness, now they beheld a great light when they witnessed the beauty of Jesus. But on this day and this hour, that great light is snuffed out. And as the glory of God is snuffed out in Christ Jesus, the sun which he created on the fourth day is no longer allowed to shine either. The earth shakes, the rocks break, and an overwhelming darkness covers the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Now Matthew 27, 46 tells us that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ali, Ali, lama shabakthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this we know, this is Psalm 22, 1, where David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And all the bystanders knew that Jesus was quoting that famous psalm. And if you grew up in Judea in the time in any Jewish culture, you didn't just quote the psalm. You sang the song to a melody. There were psalms from when they were little kids they would have known the sound of. Some scholars say that it's very likely that Jesus on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he's actually singing a melody. He's singing in this moment of brokenness the song of David. And John 19.30 tells us that when Jesus had received sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. To close Psalm 22, David writes this, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation that they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Some suggest that the last breath of Jesus and his words, it is finished, should be understood to prophetically fill the words of David in Psalm 22 when he writes that generations will come and declare he has done it. Jesus' last breath, it is finished. 
what kind of theological implications are packed in that phrase. The cup has been consumed. His mission has been fulfilled. The wrath of God has been absorbed. Sin has been dethroned. Adam's fall meets Jesus' righteousness. The author of life has endured death. And death's reign over humanity has come to an end. And death will no longer haunt those who come to Christ. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. It is finished. And he drank the cup of shame. And now shame has no dominion. It is finished. The reign of hell on earth has come to its conclusion. And the kingdom of heaven is further established. It is now breaking in. Satan has lost dominion. The the scriptures say that he publicly defeated Satan on the cross in this moment. It is finished. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Shame no longer haunts me. Demonic spirits can no longer... Torment me, it is finished. And it's finished because the story doesn't end there. And by consequence, your story doesn't end there. Your shame no longer gets the best of you. My mistakes are no longer allowed to loom over me late at night when I can't sleep and my mind wonders to my shame. It has no dominion and I now in the name of Jesus tell that voice, be silent. I can say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Sin is not my master. I'm no slave to selfishness. It is finished. Now on Sunday morning, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, steps out of the tomb as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is our victor. He is our conqueror. He is our lover. He's our shepherd, our defender, and he is alive. He is alive. Now there's more cup imagery that I want to play with just for a moment. Jesus told the disciples at the Last Supper that the cup they would drink of would be the cup of his blood. And it would be the cup of a new covenant. Luke twenty two twenty says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Revelations 19 gives us this image of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you and I are the bride who sit at the table. And the Father slid Jesus the cup of wrath and he put it to his lips. And today Jesus slides me the cup of acceptance and I put it to my lips this morning. And because he drank the cup of suffering... He now sits at the table and he passes me the cup of pure joy. Because he tasted of the cup of sorrow, I now tip back the cup of pure and endless and ecstatic joy in his presence. I drink the cup of real abundant life. He felt in that moment forsaken and I feel today totally accepted and totally loved. He drank of the cup of loneliness. Now I drink of the cup of adoption. I belong to him perfectly. 
He drank of the cup of shame so that you could stand in the presence of God and drink of the cup of boldness and confidence in his presence. We know God's pleasure is aimed at us today because Jesus drank the cup of his displeasure. I know his presence won't leave me today because he felt forsaken. I know that I'm loved and I'm cherished and I'm embraced, man, because he drank the cup of wrath that I deserved. I know God loves me perfectly. He drank the cup of loneliness. I drink the cup of intimacy daily. He's alive today and he's sliding the the cup across to you and he's saying, drink the cup of joy. I did it for you. Drink the cup of pleasure in my presence. Drink the cup of intimacy. You don't have to live in loneliness. I felt loneliness for you. You now drink the cup of my presence. Matthew 28, 1-3 tells us that as the woman came to the tomb on Sunday, there was another great earthquake. But this time there was no accompanying darkness, but an angel of the Lord standing in heavenly light who declares, He is not here, but He is risen. And here on Sunday we meet the let there be light of the new creation. The darkness has been eclipsed with the light of the new world, the light of the new kingdom, the light of the glory of God that was lost in the Garden of Eden is now released with a fresh tenacity on the earth because Jesus stepped out of the tomb and God declared, let there be light again. The scriptures say that during that earthquake on the cross, the veil was torn top to bottom so that no man could cut it from the bottom it's split from the top as if God's hand slices it down and the presence of God is no longer confined to the holy of holies it is released to the ends of the earth to God's people the presence of God does not exist in the ark of the covenant today I am the temple of the Holy Spirit Jesus allowed the light to be snuffed out and he experienced extreme darkness on Calvary so that I could live fully aware, fully empowered by the glory of God on my life. I do not live void of glory or void of presence because he endured extreme darkness. God says to you today and live in extreme light and extreme presence. You are the Light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. You live in glory. And if you feel like you lack God's presence today, I want to remind you that he endured an extreme, extremely painful death so that you could endure extremely lovely presence of God. You could live in it. You can bask in it. Colossians 1, 12 through 14 says he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. You are delivered this morning from the domain of darkness because Sunday has come. Sunday is the first day of the week. And God is declaring that it's a new Week, there is a new creative order. The old week has passed. It's, it's 
time has been fulfilled. And today is the day of life, abundant life in Christ Jesus. On Sunday, on the first day of the week, God declares again, let there be light. And on the cross, in that moment that Jesus gives up his breath, he declares, it is finished. And in the resurrection, he declares to you, this is just the beginning. At the cross, he declares, it's over. And at the resurrection, he says, you ain't seen nothing yet. Scripture tells us he's the firstborn of many brethren. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that we know because he rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead because death could not hold him. Death cannot hold me. And there's a day coming when I will step out of my grave as he releases his voice. You haven't seen nothing yet. This is just the beginning of what's to come. Scripture say he's the first fruit. He's the prototype. Jesus says in John 11, verse 25 through 26, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus says, you haven't seen anything yet. You'll laugh at hell and the grave. Death has been overcome and the grave will bow its knee to the name of Jesus. Because he declares it is finished and breathes his last breath. I now am transformed and live in the just the beginning of what's to come. Death couldn't hold him. The grave has no grip on him and all of hell could not outwit him. Death's been conquered. Jesus has prevailed. And he declares to you this morning, this is just the beginning. Sin's conquered. What Adam couldn't do in the garden, Jesus does in the wilderness. Sickness is losing her grip. Depression is on retreat. Anxiety flees at his presence. The earth will experience full deliverance from every demonic entity, from all the destruction that the fall has produced. It is finished and it is just beginning. We live with eager expectation of the coming of Christ when he will cause our bodies to stand up. And in that day, there will be no sickness. In that day, there will be no shame. In that day, we will know perfect joy and depression will be far from us. Anxiety is now leaving because it has just begun. The kingdom of God is being released in the earth. And when we thought the darkness of Friday would loom over history, the light of Sunday consumes her, engulfs her. You belong to him, and he's alive this morning. So in conclusion, I just wanted to say a few things. I want to remind you this morning that the old order has been eradicated at Calvary and the new creation has begun at resurrection. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. God is creating 
He's taking dead things and breathing his life on them again and causing them to resurrect. We live in the season of God's new creation. He's inviting you this morning to drink the cup of joy, to drink the cup of intimacy. He's inviting you this morning to step out of darkness and into light. Telling you this morning to live without fear. The grave didn't hold him. It ain't going to hold you. Live in the newness of life. Live fully aware of what's been accomplished on your behalf. And that the same spirit that rose Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you. Same spirit. If you would for a moment just bow your heads. Close your eyes. I want to ask you if you're here this morning and you would say, I've never given my life to Jesus. I've never prayed a prayer of salvation. I've never experienced what you're talking about. I want to ask you this morning to be a little bold and just slip your hand up. Your hands are getting a little sweaty and you feel a little nervous. That might be a sign that this is you. If you want to give your life to Jesus this morning, there's no better day. We've all felt shame. We've all felt brokenness we've all made mistakes what happened yesterday doesn't matter today today could be your day if you've never committed your life to Jesus I want to ask you just to slip your hand up Jesus 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 this morning if that's you I want to tell you that You don't have to live another day without his presence. You don't have to live another day consumed with guilt and shame. This morning, if that's you, I want to tell you that the blood of Jesus would wash you, would cleanse you. And the mistake you made last night doesn't have to haunt you tomorrow because the blood of Jesus would cleanse you perfectly. Your sins are cast to the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.